So, um, wow, this is, I was not expecting this crowd for 5.40 on a Friday night in Las Vegas. So <laughs> I would be like, you know, two cocktails down by now, um, and I'm not. So thank you very much. Um, I think it shows the support for uh, clinicians to want to get this information. And the, the cannabinoid track continues to grow at pain week. So your feedback on what you've seen so far in the last four days, what um, you'd like to see more of, I think is uh, really important. So thank you for inviting me. And we are going to talk about the medical efficacy of cannabinoids focus on pain management tonight. So some of you may be disappointed, but we locked the door so you can't leave. Uh, Mark Ware was supposed to be part of this uh, discussion this evening, but he got caught up at the Canadian border. Doug, how'd you get through? For those of you that didn't hear in the back of the room, so Dr. Uh, Ware is a well-known cannabis researcher at McGill University in Canada. And um, he recently took a sabbatical from McGill and he's working um, for a startup cannabis camp company in Canada. And uh, it was, uh, he was warned, not, not warned, he was, he was advised not to come into the United States or not to try and get into the United States. But he's here in spirit and maybe next year. So here are my disclosures, nothing that has anything to do with this lecture today. So our objectives um, are um, many, and it's a very dense slide deck. And so I'm going to try and get through it all in a timely fashion so that you can get out and enjoy the rest of your evening. I'm here all night, so if you have any other questions, my email was on that first slide, so please feel free to email me if you, or, or tweet me if you have any questions or send me a message on LinkedIn. Um, I'm very active on social media, and I really like to have this discussion with clinicians. There are a lot of questions. So we're going to uh, define the endocannabinoid system for you today. How many of you have heard of the endocannabinoid system? Okay, not as many as I thought would have at this stage of the game, but um, so good. Uh, so it's a worthy learning objective. We're going to talk about the evidence um, of using cannabinoids for pain management. We'll talk about uh, some of the opiate sparing effects of cannabinoids, what, what is known, what's not known. It's a very timely topic. And then we're going to talk about ways to keep your patients safe. I'm actually going to talk a lot about ways to keep your patients safe. I think gone is the day, <clears throat> really having the debate, although it's an academic debate that's worth continuing to have and research is really necessary. But the reality of it is cannabis is in our culture, it's in our environment, whether it be medicinal, or recreational, whether you agree with it or not to be used medicinally or recreationally, it's here. And we need to be able to talk to our patients uh, in an educated manner about uh, what they're exposing themselves to. So is it really that big of a deal? You know, are we just here for the free brownies at the end of the night? You know, well, I would put to you it is. Um, 29 states and growing, uh, as well as DC, Guam, and Puerto Rico, have uh, legislation for legal use of medicinal marijuana. We have eight states, including DC, that have legalized recreational cannabis. It has a global financial impact. Over 100,000 individuals are employed in the cannabis industry. There are, I believe, um, at current count, about eight cannabis companies that are on the uh, federal stock exchange. 
millions of dollars in revenue. Uh, the Cannabis Act, so Canada has had um, medicinal marijuana legislation for years. And Doug, has the Cannabis Act been passed yet? No. Okay, so the cannabis, <laughs> it's soon to come. The Cannabis Act is um, actually proposed to legalize recreational cannabis in Canada. And that's going to uh, make for interesting times up in Canada. How many of you ski in the winter up in Canada? Uh, no, yep. Yes. All right, so the, the statement from our um, Canadian up front was that it was never Canada's objective to um, legalize marijuana for um, recreational use, to just decriminalize it. Tomato, tomato, right? I mean, people will make, yeah. Okay, so we'll talk about that later. Well, okay. if, if you look at Colorado, they're building bridges, they're uh, putting infrastructure all on the backs of cannabis uh, taxation. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, gambling. But tobacco. By decriminalizing it, what you stop doing is putting people in jail for something where the greatest challenge to a medical marijuana researcher is finding negative controls of people who've never used. So it, 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 there's a schizophrenia. Oh yeah. It's. Uh, I think. I think having so much um, widespread push for legalization of recreational cannabis is really going to not only make it more difficult for us to study for medicinal purposes, it may potentially, I hate to say this, eradicate the need to do that, which would be a shame. Uh, the UK is actually also looking at legislation to legalize medicinal marijuana countrywide. <clears throat> the FDA just approved a uh, purified CBD product from cannabis plants called Epidiolex. Now, this is not for pain. Um, it is for a, a very select group of individuals, refractory pediatric epilepsy. But what happens once a drug gets FDA approved? Right? So, so it's moving, and it's moving rapidly. How many of you went into the exhibit hall in the last couple of days and saw we had three commercial companies, not pharmaceutical, but three commercial companies uh, looking to market CBD oil? Right. How many of your patients are coming to you and saying, what's CBD, or, or what's this? I've got five different brands in front of me. You know, They can't bring in their bottles and their prescriptions, but they can bring in all of their CBD oils that they got all over the country. <laughs> all right, so make no mistake about it. It's federally illegal, right? We're, we're faced with a lot of challenges, and there's major confusion. So let's take a step back. So I've been speaking on medical cannabis now probably for about eight or nine years. Um, and I started to do it in my state of California, California being the first state to legalize uh, medicinal marijuana in 1996, but nobody was talking about it. So I started talking about it. I work at an academic medical center. I have a world-class um, cancer center that we're a part of. Nobody was talking about it. Patients wanted to know, and there was a don't ask, don't tell. Right. My colleagues would come to me. I couldn't, I couldn't talk to them about it. So I felt it was time to at least open up the discussion. So in the initial um, review of, of everything to put these lectures together, I came across the fact that uh, 
cannabis was actually marketed by pharmaceutical companies for medicinal purposes and was on the U.S. pharmacopoeia up until 1942. All right. So, you know, I'm not a youngin' up here by any means. But, you know, this, this my grandparents, right? I'm trying to think, when was my mom born? Uh, at least my grandparents and most of your grandparents, if not your parents in the audience, could feasibly go and talk to their physician and say, I have X illness or I have X symptom and potentially get a prescription for marijuana. All right, I'm not talking CBD, I'm not talking THC, I'm just talking about marijuana, right? Marketed by Lilly, um, who else is up there? Park Davis, you know, and, and various others. 1930s, we saw the U.S. Federal Bureau of Narcotics um, putting out legislation and putting out uh, just information that um, marijuana was a gateway drug that could potentially lead to narcotics addiction. I find that a little bit ironic now that we're looking at the opposite, right? We really are. Now we're looking at the potential for marijuana to decrease opiate use. Everything comes and goes around, right? You know, who's wearing their 70s clothes today, right? Um, so 1937, we saw the passage of the uh, Marijuana Tax Act. Now, the Marijuana Tax Act did not reschedule or schedule <clears throat> uh, cannabis. <clears throat> it didn't um, make it illegal. But it, ha- it taxed it so heavily that essentially it made it you one ab- unable to, u- to grow it, to cultivate it, and to use it in commerce. And then it was the famous uh, Controlled Substance Act of 1970 that put it into a Schedule One category, making it of uh, no medicinal value whatsoever. Okay, there uh, was the passage of the Compassionate uh, Investigative, excuse me, Investigational New Drug Program in 1978, and this allowed for um, cultivation and um, distri- distribution of cannabis to a certain subset of patients. Um, with uh, the caveat that all of the marijuana had to be grown at the, grown at the University of Mississippi. And the University of Mississippi continues to grow cannabis that's used in medical research today. That uh, Compassionate New Drug Act doesn't, doesn't hold any water any longer. So I know this is a bit of a busy slide, and I don't know, hopefully you can all see it in the back of the room. This is a very condensed version of uh, the milestones in cannabinoid science. So in 1964, Ralph McCollum was able to synthesize, to identify and then synthesize THC in a laboratory. And you chemists in the room, you know that once you are able to identify a structure and then recreate it and then find a binding site, then you know, the, the available uh, research opportunities are just astounding. So what we saw is we saw then synthetic cannabinoids start coming on the market. That's your Marinol, your Sestimet, right? These are uh, THC derivatives. Um, Excuse me. They're they're synthetic THC. They're not from the marijuana plant, but they are THC nonetheless, and you can write a prescription for these synthetic uh, THC pills and have that uh, covered usually by the patient's insurance. Now, there is one error up there, and I don't know if, if anybody can see it in the back of the room, but I, um, the 1988, which is at the far end, which kind of comes to the end of our uh, cannabinoid science <clears throat> pictorial up here, really should be 1998. But before that, okay, so between 1980 
and 1990, we had a whole host of discoveries. So not only now did we um, identify the THC molecule, we identified its binding sites, we identified this um, notion of a, an endogenous uh, cannabinoid system in the body. We identified endogenous cannabinoids, um, and we're just beginning to realize what they actually do in the body now. <clears throat> Where the research is going forward is really looking now at um, further um, exploration of this endocannabinoid system, um, identifying beyond the five endocannabinoids that we know now, uh, looking at different receptors or binding sites. CB1, CB2 are the most well-known currently, but there are two or three others that we think are potentially involved in this whole endocannabinoid system. Um, also looking at manipulation of that system. So if you think about, and I'm, and I'm making an analogy which might be somewhat far-fetched for many of you, but when I look at the endocannabinoid system, and the fact that we may have a disruption in an endogenous system that causes disease, and I'll, I'll explore this a little bit more in, in other slides, and you can find <clears throat> exogenous materials that somehow feed this dysfunctional endogenous system, um, can you create uh, medicines that have a utility for patients, right? And the analogy is um, depression and SSRIs and SNRIs, right? We've known for a long time, and maybe we don't know all of it, but we know that depression is a lack of serotonin and norepinephrine, right, in the circulatory system. So where did the pharmaceutical company then take this information, right? They, they developed drugs called serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors that actually either decreased the, um, the reuptake of these neurotransmitters that we know that, that individuals need to be mood enhancers or somehow um, gave additional serotonin and norepinephrine, right? And that's our remedy for depression. How many patients on de that, that you take care of that have depression and or anxiety that either are not on an SNRI or an SSRI or uh, have never been tried on one before? Not many, right? It's kind of become standard of practice, um, particularly in a situation where you don't have the ability to uh, have your patient see a therapist. It's easier, right? We're a pill culture. Let's just write pills. So um, again, the science going forward with the endocannabinoid system, so manipulation of the endocannabinoid system. So if we identify that we need um, circulatory, circulatory endocannabinoids for um, health of the individual, then why would we not manipulate this system? And then other research is looking at ways to use exogenous or phytocannabinoids, i.e. marijuana, and correct the system, right? Spent way more time on that, on that slide than I intended to. So let's talk a little bit more about the endocannabinoid system. Real book, you can go out and purchase it, Amazon, $5. So the endocannabinoid system is a homeostatic uh, regulatory system inherited by all mammals, right? It, it's just astounding to me that we continue to learn new things about ourselves and our body, and, and uh, that's why I love medicine so much. It's just a fascinating science. So all mammals, right? You, your patients, your cats, your dogs. I have a girlfriend that uh, hails from Colorado, and she loves to just tease me about this lecture. And uh, so I found a pictorial of the um, endocannabinoid system of a dog, and I gave it to her. She loves dogs. 
It's like, yeah, those dogs in Colorado, they are so special. So the endocannabinoid system, as I alluded to in the earlier slide, what we know, CB1, CB2 receptor site, right? These are where endogenous cannabinoids bind uh, and do their work. This is where exogenous cannabinoids bind and do their work. There's uh, two others, CBX and uh, CR1, that we're still um, looking at, investigating, deciding you know, the utility of these and, and <clears throat> what they really mean and what binds to them. The uh, five known endocannabinoids uh, are up there for you. Anandamide and 2-AG are the best known, best studied. Um, there's probably more that we just haven't discovered yet. And then all of the synthesizing and uh, degrading enzymes that are involved in um, keeping uh, the endocannabinoids uh, in healthy form. So essentially what this system does is it helps with our cognition, with our memory, uh, inflammation, our stress response, our appetite, right, and antinociception. Essentially what it does is it helps us relax, it helps us eat, sleep, all of the things that we need to do to have a quality of life and, and, um, and survive, essentially. So this is another pictorial um, for you, and it's just for you to, to take a look at and then um, digest later on. It's a very complicated picture, but there's actually a lot of pieces missing to it. But this is kind of what we know now, right, in a pictorial form. So we've got the CB1, CB2 receptor site. We've got the other two receptor sites um, there that uh, are listed for you. And what's common to all of these receptor sites in terms of what, um, what we believe um, it influences in terms of different body symptoms is all pain, right? So pain, definitely in these two, right? So the, um, the binding of CB1 and CB2 receptor site both have a role to play in, to, in terms of pain management, pain regulation. CB1, we think more so with THC. Uh, CBD, um, we're exploring more in the binding of the CB2 receptor site. Um, but then you have pain over in these two as well. We just don't know a lot about it. <clears throat> so I've got a really short video for you. It's a, a video, I think, from 2015, so it's an older video, but I think it's still really appropriate, particularly in an audience that, that maybe this is the first time that you've heard about the endocannabinoid system, and it's a really you know, different concept to you. Um, what it will show you... So I kind of, I, was it playing? Uh, what it will show you is all the different binding, um, the endocannabinoid um, binding sites within the uh, body. I can't, oh, there you go. Volume. Volume. It's Dr. Gooden's fault because we couldn't test this before, um, before I got up here because he took too long with his questions. get just like 30 seconds, and if you can't get it, we can pass it, and they can look at it later on. <clears throat> get to volume, we'll go on. Okay, so um, you will have access to that video on your slide deck, uh, and it, it's interesting. It, it kind of lights up more exposure to the uh, CB1 and the CB2 receptor sites in the brain, in the spinal canal, 
uh, in the liver, in the bone marrow, but then you get a good body map. And so it's, it's entertaining to watch. All right, uh, Ethan Russo. So our um, cannabis or cannabinoid experts out in the audience, who's heard of Ethan Russo before? Oh, very few of you. You can raise your hand. Are you sleeping? Okay. Um, so Ethan Russo is really the, you know, the godfather, and I don't mean that in a negative way, of um, cannabis research. Of, um, he writes a lot. He publishes a lot. There's books out there that he's, that he's written. Uh, he's a neurologist. And he got interested in uh, cannabis, the study of cannabis for medicinal purposes beyond pain. And in 2004, he postulated this endocannabinoid system theory of disease. And what he said was, there was, similar to what I was saying about depression and the lack of serotonin and norepinephrine, that there were sufficient, um, uh, insufficient uh, utility of endocannabinoids, natural cannabinoids in the body, uh, or a dysfunction somehow that could contribute to disease. And the diseases that he really pointed out were those that we historically consider as more central nervous system diseases, right? Or, or, or central pain syndromes, uh, fibromyalgia, migraine, irritable bowel, um, interstitial cystitis. And so what he thought was a good remedy for this is that maybe we could use, if we can't, because 2004, remember this is way before we even thought about uh, modulating the endocannabinoid system, but wouldn't it be neat to be able to use a plant, right, a purified plant, and then treat the disease this way? And I really found this an interesting concept. I get pushed back a lot. Um, just uh, looking to publish a paper on this with a colleague of mine, and she's a nurse researcher in Iowa, and she just keeps pushing me back on this theory. Well, there's no, there's no literature about it. There's really no testing on it. And I'm like, yeah, but isn't it a great idea? Doesn't it make a lot of sense? And uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a nurse researcher, but I just like it makes so much sense to me. All right, so what is marijuana? Right, Doug? I'm still here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Dr. Gourlay's up front, and, and uh, I was um, asked to help him with a panel earlier today, and he says, I'm going to come help you with your lecture. And I said, please come on. And I almost got him a mask that looked like Dr. Ware's face on it. He wouldn't have anything to do with that. So marijuana is a plant, right? Cannabis sativa. It's a plant with over 400 different chemicals. Um, over 60 of those um, are termed cannabinoids. The two cannabinoids that we know the most of are THC and CBD. Um, but there's a lot of other cannabinoids, right? There's flavonoids, there's terpenes, terpenoids, the things, the chemicals within the plant that give it the distinct um, taste, the, the aroma. There's also fungus, there's pesticides, there's rats, there's bugs, there's bacteria, <clears throat> right? And this, this is a key point that I really want you to pay attention to when, you know, you, your patient comes in and says, you know, I've been doing cannabis or I, or I buy my marijuana here or I do this. Um, being able to, if you, if you feel that this is okay and it's part of your treatment plan, really spending the time to talk to them about where they're getting their product, what the purity is of the product, how do they know it's not you know, um, filled with fungus or bacteria, particularly if they're using it, they're inhaling it, right? 
So we really have to pay attention to that. Um, once we patients are telling us, divulging to us, and I think they're getting more and more comfortable with this about what they're using. So where's the research, right? The research in the United States is coming out of the Center for Medicinal uh, Cannabis Research out of UCSD, uh, uh, Center for Natural Products um, Research, uh, NIDA, NIH. Now, <clears throat> one thing to remember is that all of the research, and if anyone knows any different, please correct me, but my understanding is that all of the research um, that's done in the, funded by the government um, actually use that, uses that same product that's grown out of the University of Mississippi. Old old Miss. Um, so my understanding is that you know the products aren't that great, right? You really don't have. If you're a researcher and you get a NIDA grant and you ask the government for the cannabis, the product, of, the quality of the product is questionable. And when I've talked to cannabis researchers in the past, you know that's a problem, right? It does not look like what patients are using now or what individuals are using now. Um, so, but nonetheless, we continue to, to do with what we can. In cannabis, you've got, in cannabis, in Canada, you've got the Institutes of Health Research, <laughs> and you've got the Canadian Consortium for uh, Investigational Cannabinoids. And in Europe, um, a lot of the research in the UK is funded by the Medicinal Cannabis Research Foundation, but you have cannabis, or you have um, a lot of cannabis research <clears throat> being done. Is that a fire alarm? Um, exit the building with um, uh, pharma. So pharmaceutical companies, because of the challenge with doing uh, research in the United States, probably and the quality of the product, are tending to do a lot of research outside of the United States. All right. So I am not going to bore you too much with all of the research that's out there. Again, when I started doing this lecture eight plus years ago. There wasn't a lot. I mean, there were enough studies to talk about, but they were all small sample, mixed um, uh, product. You know, you really couldn't draw a lot of good conclusions. Right now, there's probably 10 times the available research out there. So I did not have a year to prepare for this lecture. So what I did was I took um, three of the best um, meta-analysis that I could find current, all within the last two years, and I'm going to talk to you about really what their findings are and then what their um, uh, final conclusions are. So um, a lot of people have maybe read this study. This was really popular when it came out because it was published in JAMA. And uh, we all, you know, have a respect for what is published in JAMA. We feel that there's uh, good editors there that make sure that the, the quality of the research or the quality of the paper is uh, worthwhile. Some will argue that. So um, this was a meta-analysis that was published in 2015. And what their conclusions were, um, that there was moderate quality evidence to support the use of cannabinoids for the treatment of chronic pain and spasticity. They said that there was low quality evidence to suggest that cannabinoids were associated with any improvements of nausea and vomiting due to chemotherapy, uh, weight gain, or HIV uh, infection, sleep disorders, or Tourette's. So, um, you know, you might be sitting there and saying, well, I thought cannabis was good for nausea and vomiting, right? Isn't that what uh, Marinol, isn't that what Sestimet or FDA approved for, for nausea and vomiting? Um, 
I, I don't think that really matters. I really don't care about that. I mean, we have such good drugs on the market for nausea and vomiting anyway. And if you really looked at cannabis head-to-head -head with um, Zofran or Anzimet or some of those other um, anti-emetics, that really there's no benefit. The only benefit that you would want to use um, uh, cannabis for would be if somebody has an allergy to one of the other medications. Uh, but really, it's the pain, the pain and uh, anti-spasticity that, uh, that I'm most interested in. I am going to skip ahead here and come back because that is a, the Cochrane Report is a 2018 study or meta-analysis and really kind of pulls it all together. So this was a, a meta-analysis that was published in 2017. And what they found that there were selective, they felt that of the studies that they looked at, selective cannabinoids provided a small analgesic benefit in patients with chronic uh, neuropathic pain. So this is just looking at neuropathic pain. There was a high degree of uh, heterogeneity, geneticity. They were heter heterogeneous um, in the sample size, so they were really a good mixture, right? You weren't just looking at one product or one disease state or you know one patient population. It was really a nice mix, which is what you want to look for when you're looking at, um, at some kind of a positive uh, response. Um, they felt that there was a well, the, the studies that they reviewed were well designed, they were large randomized um, studies, and um, that uh, they only considered randomized controlled trials that uh, were compared for their selective cannabinoids. So again, they used uh, what's available pharmaceutically as well as um, extracts of THC and CBD from plants. Oh, I'm sorry, we'll go back to this one. All right, so this is the... Um, the Cochrane Review that uh, just came out this year. And it was uh, looking at, again, chronic neuropathic pain in adults of cannabis-based uh, uh, medicines. They really found in the, in the review that they looked at, and I, I have a lot of respect and trust and um, put a lot of value on what the Cochrane um, reviewers uh, put out there, probably even more than JAMA. Um, but what they found is that there was really no high-quality evidence, but there was a lot of um, kind of lower-quality, moderate evidence um, that showed that cannabis-based medicines had a substantial and moderate um, uh, evidence of pain relief and global improvement uh, in the study patients that they, that they uh, evaluated. They found that there was no difference in all cannabis-based medicines that were pooled together, um, and that... Um, there was no, patients did not drop out of the study um, because of uh, medications uh, not being effective. They um, did find that more people reported sleepiness, dizziness, and mental problems, and that may have had them you know, drop out of the study. Um, but other than that, the side effects uh, from the uh, studies were low. All right. So this is the final kind of research um, uh, booklet that I want to put out. And it's not really research. It's recommendations by respected individuals in, in the United States and beyond um, that were pulled together um, by the um, National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. And they put out a publication in 2017. They were asked to look at, the again, the available literature um, for efficacy and for safety profiles. And what they found is um, in their their estimation that um, adults with chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, that oral cannabis uh, was effective um, as antiemetics, that adults with chronic pain were more likely to experience clinically significant uh, pain relief, 
and that adults with MS-related spasticity reported uh, improvement with their spasticity. So taking all four of those together, you know, what are your conclusions? My conclusions are that there is a signal of pain relief, particularly neuropathic pain relief, but we really need better studies. We need higher quality studies to put the gold stamp on it and say, yes, this is what we're going to um, go forward with recommending. Yeah? One of the problems with the studies on spasticity is while there's patient endorsement of improvement, there's very little objective evidence Okay. So it's very important. So something that uh, Dr. Galay mentioned was that even though in, in these studies with spasticity, and I think we've, we have seen a stronger um, signal with the reduction in spasticity with cannabis than, than pain in general, hence it got approved for um, use of uh, MS spasticity uh, in a pharmaceutical product in Canada and also in the UK. So, but, but the studies really did not... Um, weren't powered to show effect in um, actual reduction of spasticity, right, on the scales that they used. However, patients reported improvement, right? So, yes, okay, I, I, I would agree with that, and I think that that's justifiable, and I think that that's incredibly academic. But if patients are saying that they're feeling better and they're getting improvement and the side effects are low or non-existent, should that count for something? Yeah. And the problem with this is to imagine that there will be any fewer adverse events associated with medical use under our conditions than we find in the general population is bordering jig statistics. It, it, it's nonsense. Yeah. There has to be at least as much as we find in general users. And so we have to be cautious. Yeah. I, I think the spasticity issue is as much a limitation of tool to measure it yeah. Thank you. One quick question, then we'll move on, but I'll, I'll be here for questions later. Yes. I just have a comment. Yep. I pulled all the pain studies and ripped them apart. Mm -hmm. All of them? So um, comment is that, from a lady up here, I think that does a lot of cannabis lecturing as well, is that the studies that she's evaluated um, really, in her opinion, they were selected, the study participants were selected for their tolerance um, and exposure to cannabis previously. So <clears throat> there are thousands and thousands and thousands of studies out there. Um, but it's interesting. It's a great dialogue to have. So um, this is the current consensus statement, and I think it's in review, um, and Dr. Gourley may, may know or not, um, of the, the Canadian Pain Society and what they recommend for their use of medicinal cannabis um, in chronic neuropathic pain. So their recommendations um, are to try gabapentinoids, TCAs, um, SNRIs as first line, right? Tramadol and opiate analgesics. And I think what I saw was like extended release analge uh, opiate analgesics, if I'm not mistaken. 
And then cannabinoids is third line. Um, and the, my understanding of the potential review for this is, is not necessarily to switch two and three, right? It's actually probably to take cannabinoids off of that list. Um, but we'll see. So the ultimate question, will cannabinoids solve the opiate crisis? What is your opinion? What do you think? No. They asked me that question when I was in the green room, and I think I gave them the wrong answer. I don't think it's a solution, but it's an interesting discussion to have, right? Um, so, all right, where do they compare? Cannabinoids, CB1 receptor found in regions of the brain, modulates nociception, nociceptive proce uh, processing, all right? Mu receptor in the brain, in the, in the um, uh, central nervous system, modulates uh, nociceptive behavior. THC modulates um, the reward centers in the brain, as do opiates. Um, CB1 and CB2 um, agonists that were given to patients um, had peripheral analgesic uh, actions. And when you gave um, antagonists, anta opiate antagonists, it did not take the analgesic benefit away in a small set of study populations. Um, IV THC has been studied um, and shown in small sample size to exert no susceptive um, benefit. THC and CBD uh, are more likely to be analgesic together. Uh, we don't know what that ratio is. Um, okay, uh, opiates have been well studied. We know the mechanism action. We know how they work, right? Uh, we also know with opiates that exposure over time will result in hyperalgesia, endocrinopathies, lethal over overdoses, which, which is really what we're concerned about when, it, when we talk about the opiate crisis. Um, and cannabinoids, less overdose potential, that's for sure. They're less lethal and possibly less side effect profile. So time and research will really show us you know, if the activation of the endocannabinoid system with or without the use of exogenous cannabinoids um, will um, enhance the uh, opiate, um, endogenous opiate system uh, in the body uh, or and or be uh, synergistic for pain relief. The, the, the jury's still out on that. So this is a very sophisticated, very um, hypothesized way of looking at the potential that the cannabinoid system and the opiate system, endogenous opiate system, will work together. Oh, that's my phone. Oh, my God. I am so sorry. I bet it's my husband calling. Oh, maybe it's Dr. Ware. Oh, it's my housekeeper. <laughs> oh, my God, that's so funny. Okay, so the, um, the main hypothesis related to the opiate and the cannabis currently um, interactions, and again, any scientists in the room that know more about this, you know, please, uh, please pitch in, but that um, hopefully you can see the little green uh, circle that went up there. So um, there are hypothesized to be indirect interactions and um, alterations of the cannabinoid system after exposure to opiates that somehow could be synergistic. Um, hypothesized that maybe that interaction at the signal transduction um, region is really where the two can be synergistic together. Um, or direct uh, interaction at the receptor and, and release and or synthesis of the endogenous uh, opiate peptides by cannabinoids um, that maybe make them synergistic. All right. So um, 
I think, again, the jury's still out, but there's a lot of questions being asked about is our cannabinoids the next thing to really get us out of this opiate crisis, right? <clears throat> it's a study, uh, another meta-analysis that was published in 2017, and um, the purpose was to look at opiate sparing potential of cannabinoids. So they looked at uh, 28 studies that met their criteria, and what they found is that the median effect uh, dose of morphine in their study participants in, in all the studies put together administered in combination with THC, right, um, was three times lower than morphine alone in order to get a, a, a positive reduction in pain. Why they bothered, bothered looking at codeine, I don't know, other than maybe that was what was out there in terms of the studies that they could pull. But they did also look at codeine administration and THC together, and they found that um, there was almost 10 times less codeine that you needed um, to get an analgesic benefit compared with the THC. Mm-hmm. We, we tend to conflate THC with cannabis. And if you really were to take Marinol and give that to opioid users, we don't see that. Yeah, I can get that for you. I don't, I don't remember. And there might have been a mixture, remember, because it was a meta-analysis. So there might have been some patients that were taking synthetic THC, but they also may have gotten purified THC from the plant. I just, I'd have to go back and look at that. And, and the other important point is when you use the phrase synthetic THC, Sometimes that gets uh, equated with bath salts and K2 and other things that quite legitimately don't show up in your toxicology. When I talk to her, and people, when we talk about synthetic THC, we're talking about man-made identical molecule to what comes out uh, by extraction. And that's quite different because dronabinol absolutely produces a positive immunoassay yeah, when you test for it. So make no mistake, synthetic marijuana is often K2 and bath salts. And so synthetic THC is THC that didn't come from a plant. Yeah. So, so, th- so when we talk about synthetic THC, I think most lecturers will, the meaning of that is either Marinol or Sestimet, right? No, uh, secondary point. Yeah. Sestimet is not THC. It's, it's active at the CBD, uh, as a CBD ligand. It does not show up positive for THC. That's interesting, because I, I always thought it was in synthetic so, THC. Okay. Absolutely. Hippocrates tells you it is. I'm sorry? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, All I, right. I, I can assure you that. <clears throat> okay. So, um, this, uh, this was an interesting study that um, was uh, looked at um, a group of uh, patients, Medicare patients, and uh, between 2000 and 2015, so um, over um, 23 million daily doses of opiates. And <clears throat> what this, the uh, researchers were interested in was looking at those patients um, on Medicare that were getting opioid prescriptions um, in states where there was uh, medical cannabis um, legislation on, in their state. And what they found was that the prescriptions for all opiates that were written for Medicare patients decreased by about 2 million daily doses per year in states that had medical cannabis uh, legislation. And then once dispensaries opened, then you saw a further decrease, um, almost double uh, decrease, in the uh, opiate prescriptions that were written. 
So when you really think, you know, it's interesting, we think about who are the, who's the population that are using cannabis right now, right? It's really the 60 and older generation, right? It really is. And these are the, these are the folks that we need to um, not disregard as using medical cannabis. All right. <clears throat> so um, this was another um, uh, meta-analysis or, or review of um, the use of uh, opiates in um, states that had uh, marijuana laws, again, on the books, but not Medicare patients, looking at Medicaid patients. And so this was a population-based cross-sectional study looking at um, all Medicaid patients that they could capture the data on and uh, prescriptions that were being written for opiates um, over a five-year period up until 2016. And what they found was that the medical marijuana laws um, and uh, adult use uh, marijuana laws, so this is um, recreational as well as medicinal, uh, were associated with lower prescribing of opiate rates um, by about 6%. So, okay, those are interesting studies, right? There's, those are population-based. We get a lot of information. You could say, oh, yes, that's a cause and effect, or you could just say, well, that's just coincidental. It is interesting to look at, but I found this as the most significant um, uh, piece of data that was published uh, in JAMA. And this came out, um, this was published in 2014. So this looked at um, a, uh, a time frame uh, over a 10-year period of time. And, and it, it, they stopped collecting data in 2010. So this is really way before we started worrying about the CDC guidelines, the uh, importance of reducing uh, opiate use. So I think that there was signal. I mean, folks were talking about, are we over-prescribing opiates? You know, what's happening? Are we seeing more deaths? We need to start getting a handle on this. Um, but this was just data that looked at the um, amount of um, opiate-related deaths in cannabis um, states, or states that had cannabis legislation for medicinal use. And what they found was um, that states with medical cannabis laws had almost a 25% lower mean annual opiate overdose mortality rate compared with states that did not. So this is just a fun um, statistic up there. I don't, I don't know if the, of the legitimacy of the blog site that it came from. But um, what I found interesting about this was looked at um, not just pain um, pills in general or medications for pain, but for all other uh, disease states or um, diagnosis that we would associate the use of cannabis for. So pain far and above. Um, showed that there was a lot less medications, not just opiates, but a lot less medications written for pain in states that had medicinal cannabis legislation, um, all the way down to glaucoma and spasticity. All right, so I keep saying time will tell about the use of opiates, uh, excuse me, the use of cannabis, and it will it reduce our, our reliance on opiates, or will it somehow... Um, allow us to use less opiates so that it's considered safer and we have less deaths. So um, Dr. Cunningham was awarded an almost $4 million grant um, at uh, Albert Einstein to really study this problem. And she's not the only one, but this is going to be a significant um, body of work that she's going to produce over the next five years, so keep an eye out on that. And she's, um, you know, feasibly, she said there's a lack of information about the Im impact of medical marijuana on opiate use in chronic pain, and, uh, and she's going to take a look at this for us, and maybe we'll have some preliminary data next year when we do this lecture again. So um, how many of you in this room can relate to this picture, right? I know nothing about cannabis, right? 
probably all of the people that just left the room. So, um, so what are your talking points? So, you know, you, you still have your opinions. I don't think that anything I've said this evening has really changed your opinion one way or another. Am I going to use it for pain? Am I not going to use it for pain? But how I started my lecture was telling you it's out there. You have to deal with it. You can't just put your head in the sand and say it doesn't exist. I'm not even going to bother with it, right? That's not good patient care. So if you know that your patient's using cannabis or they come and they ask you about it and they need, they need you as their um, authority figure, the, the person that they trust, to give them some guidance, you need to be able to have an open dialogue with your patient. Right? You can say, I don't believe in it for X, Y, and Z reasons. I can't, um, I'm not going to prescribe it. I'm not going to do the medical recommendation for it. But you know, please, thank you for telling me that you're using this. And maybe I can give you some resources to at least you know, get some information. Um, for all of the patients that um, come into my clinic that, that are interested in using this or are using it recreationally and saying it's having a medicinal benefit for them, I say, let's get your medical marijuana card, right? All states, if you go, if you just Google medicalmarijuana.gov in your state, then you'll get to the, the um, website that allows you to fill out what you need as a healthcare provider um, and do your due diligence of the physical exam and all that. And then their patient, your patients fill out their information, send it to the state with a you know, hefty fee, and then they get their medicinal marijuana card. Um, it, was, it was funny because I had a patient that was using <clears throat> cannabis on a regular basis. And then when it went legal in California for recreational purposes, um, I don't think he had his card. He came to me and asked me if we could get his medical marijuana card because he said that when he goes to the dispensary, the recreational cannabis is much more expensive than the medicinal cannabis is. And I said, oh, well, you're going to have to pay out of pocket. You're going to have to go see this doctor, you know, pay $250 to get a physical exam. And he's like, oh, my God, no. I said, just grow it then. Don't worry about it. No, but it just... You know, it gives some legitimacy. It makes me feel better. I think it, it, it says to the patient, this is in, this, there's something important about this um, that we need to um, pay attention to. You're using it for medicinal purposes. Why don't we just get this little piece of paper? It's like the husband or the uh, partner that says, we don't need that piece of paper to get, you know, we're a couple. We don't need to get married. We don't need that piece of paper behind. Yes, you do. Damn right you do. That's what I told my husband. We need that piece of paper. Um, <laughs> Traveling considerations. Not all states have the same legislation, right? So some are a little bit more lenient, some are not so. There still are states out there that, Texas, that doesn't have medicinal marijuana legislation. So if patients, even with their medical marijuana card from California, are caught in Texas or caught in another state with their stash, you know, they could potentially get prosecuted. So that's important to remember. Um, you can share the extent of the research as you know it with your patients, right? Depending upon their educational level, that, that could be something that they might find very interesting. They'll probably tell you what they know, which may actually supersede what you know. Um, I give my patients, I have a typed up list of uh, web resources, which is at the end of your slide deck for you, that again, allows them to go and do more research on their own. Uh, discuss the drug and plant interaction. So patients really need to know it's a, this fallacy that it's a plant, it's safe, right? It's not. There's a huge metabolism through the liver, um, interacts with a lot of other drugs that go through the same metabolic pathways. Um, it, 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 THC has CNS side effects, so if they're taking other medications that also have CNS side effects or alcohol or anything else that can be depressing, 
um, it can be a big issue. So they need to understand that. And I typically don't recommend any particular product or dispensaries, but you know, I give patients information about what I know in terms of purity of product, but I don't you know, say brand X is what I want you to take. Mental health considerations, right? Um, THC hits the same reward systems. The jury is out on CBD um, as, can, as, as other um, habit-forming um, substances, cocaine, alcohol, opiates. So be aware of that. You know, if you have somebody that has an active addiction problem, do you want them using marijuana? Do you want them using products with THC in it? Probably not. There's evidence of uh, cannabis dependence. We've seen that borne out in the literature um, over long-term users. Uh, patients will express symptoms of irritability, craving potentially um, if they have an addiction um, to the product, uh, disturbed sleep, agitation. In up to 90% of cannabis users, chronic cannabis users that then um, have to stop taking it, um, say they go into the hospital or for some reason they're, they're not getting it. So understand there can be a, with a withdrawal phenomenon. Um, cannabis and mental illness, I think we've seen, as Dr. Gourlay had mentioned, you know, folks that, um, that either aren't tolerant to THC or tend to use more over time for whatever reason, that we've seen a, a rash of psychosis that develops um, in individuals. So it can affect motivation. He, uh, Dr. Gourlay, again, has a nice um, analogy. Um, God, how do you say it? You, only you can say it. What does the cannabis user do? They stop at green lights, right? Yeah. Did you hear that? <laughs> Alcohol users run red lights. Cannabis users stop at green lights. So it's not only about getting behind the car, but you know, I have um, a lot of colleagues and friends that say cannabis ruined my child's life. They have absolutely, you know, this was somebody that was going to, you know, destined to go on to Harvard and do this, that, and the other thing. They get um, into cannabis, and they don't want to do anything any longer. All right. Tolerance of cannabis in terms of mood and sleep, psychomotor performance. So if patients are telling you they're taking it for sleep, they're taking it for mood, just like opiates, they potentially are going to need more or stronger product to get the same kind of effect. Um, Anti-emetic properties, again, um, you know, folks that are using it as an anti-emetic, and I probably don't recommend using it as an anti-emetic because we have such good anti-emetics out there, pharmaceutical products, you know, the cannabis they're going to become tolerant to as well. Common side effects, uh, anticholinergic side effects, again, which um, could have a bearing if uh, your patients are on other anticholinergics, and then CNS side effects, as I mentioned. Cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. I thought that there was going to be a lecture in this conference on, on cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, but I didn't see it on the formal agenda. Um, was it? Okay. So um, a real, uh, real um, syndrome we're not going to spend a lot of time on because of um, um, the fact that it's getting late and folks are leaving. <laughs> So you do have um, cannabis that, that uh, there is that competitive um, metabolism through the liver that you need to pay attention to, and then the interaction of CNS depressants, as I mentioned. Okay. So uh, pharmacokinetics, usually um, the, the main concern is with THC, right? If we didn't have THC and we didn't have the psychoactive properties of marijuana, would we really care so much? Would the government really care so much? Um, I think it's the, the THC is what we're most concerned about. 
And um, so understanding that um, THC is a psychoactive cannabinoid, um, we don't believe that the other cannabinoids that we have researched have the same extent of psychoactivity, um, and probably not at all. Um, it's highly lipophilic, rapidly absorbed through the lungs through inhalation, and reaches high serum concentration um, almost immediately. Um, the bioavailability is still poor, even with in the inhalation rate, about 25% on daily uh, users and uh, less than 15% on occasional users. Um, the liver first-pass metabolism I mentioned, and uh, really no bearing on um, if folks have uh, urinary um, uh, alterations uh, in their uh, creatinine. It's not a really a concern. A half-life for occasional users is about one to two days, but can be um, weeks to months in uh, daily uh, chronic users. So I put this up, again, just for your um, edification, because I want you to realize that your patients are going to be more apt to using edibles. They feel more comfortable with it. Um, but really, if you're looking at it from its pharmaceutical perspective, you know, you want something that's going to hit the bloodstream quickly that is predictable. You can tell your patients, you know, when they have to worry that most of the psychoactivity is going to hit them, um, as opposed to something that could take anywhere from one to five hours to hit their bloodstream. Um, and if they don't feel anything within an hour that they're consuming more, really quick story. I had a little 70-some-odd-year-old woman who got her medical marijuana card, she got her product, she gave it to her daughter. Her daughter had a lovely recipe for cannabis cookies. Unfortunately, she didn't make yucky oatmeal raisin cookies, she made really good sugar cookies that mom really, really liked. Well, could mom just take a bite of the cookie and then just go to sleep and relax? No, mom had to eat the whole cookie. What did she do? She wound up in the hospital with a broken hip because she fell out the chair, right? So it's really important. <laughs> I hate, I hate it when we put it in candy, when we put it in gummy bears, right? Safety with the family is another big consideration. I don't like the edibles. Um, varieties and strains, so there are different varieties out there, and not only um, are they out there in the natural plant, but you have a lot of manipulation of growers um, to make uh, certain products more um, sedating or more activating. Um, so again, realize that there's a lot of variation in there in what your patients are obtaining and, uh, and potentially using. So um, the, the way that you dose this, the way that patients respond to it, really has a lot of different factors, from the dose and the variety to the route of administration um, to the use of other uh, medicines and um, the patient's um, overall general health, right? You just have to you know, keep that in mind. It is, it's a serious medicine. Um, potentially even the not regulated as so, such. And so if your patients are using it, you need to be able to advise them appropriately. So one thing that um, patients do ask me is when they go into a dispensary, um, often things are written in um, percentage, right? So what does that mean if you have something that's 20% THC versus 2% THC? Because as clinicians, we're used to writing things in milligrams, right? And patients are used to seeing prescriptions in a milligram formulation. And I'll give you kind of just a frame of reference. Marinol, um, synthetic THC, uh, the dosing starts at like five milligrams a day to five milligrams twice a day, not for pain, but for, you know, the indication that it's approved for. So you, you'd, I feel comfortable recommending cannabis-naive users to start at 2.5 to 5 milligrams a day 
And then you dose to tolerance, right, into effect. So what I tell my patients about the percentage, it's really the matter of moving a decimal point and putting a milligram behind it, right? So if you have something that is um, listed as 20% THC, really that's a load of THC, right? That's like 200 milligrams of THC uh, per gram of cannabis. Another quick story, funny. I had a patient in the hospital the other day. Now, she had a really bad, she was chychectic, and she had uh, necrotizing fasciitis and, and horrible. And uh, I got called in because, um, into the hospital because the nurses were concerned on how much opiate she was consuming. And so I'm really trying to think, you know, how can I play the game and get her off of her opiates, take the PCA away? And I'm like, oh, okay, let's ask her about sleep because I'd love to put her on a TCA that has sedating properties, which I know is going to help with her pain so she's not waking up in the middle of the night. So I'm like, well, how is your sleep? And she's like, well, it's just absolutely fine as long as I take this. And I look at what this is on her bedside table, and it's a canister of a gummy bears. And each gummy bear had 100 milligrams of THC in it. So I just pop a couple. I'm like, oh, my God. Okay. So, all right. So we had some discussion there. Um, but, you know, again, pay attention to milligrams and, and patient's tolerance. Um, there's really lack of standardization um, for clinicians as well as patients in terms of how do we dose this. Um, and that hopefully will be forthcoming if we ever do get um, medicinal, real medicinal products out there. So the the way to be safe is just to start with low dosing, whether it's an inhalation route or a topical or a intranasal or an IV or an oral, and then dose to tolerance or side effects. Okay. So I put this up there just so that you know that there are, see, and I put synthetic THC on my uh, sestimate there. So I have to change that slide now. Um, there are two products on the market, um, and uh, you can write prescriptions for them, both Sestimate and uh, Dronabinol or uh, Marinol, um, not for pain, um, but if you, if you just felt very, very uncomfortable with writing um, or endorsing the use of plant-based cannabis, but you wanted to try a THC product for your patients in pain, and you felt comfortable in doing so, you have some options, right, and you have some dosing um, recommendations. The two products, <clears throat> well, Epidiolex now uh, approved in the U.S., <clears throat> not for pain, but you'll have, you know, in the next three to five years, you'll have this available to you if you, um, you decided to use it off-label. Um, purified form of CBD um, from a plant, um, and SadFX is really um, the product that, is, that we see used in Canada, we see used in the U.K., for uh, spasticity and for pain. And that's uh, almost a one-to-one -one ratio of THC and CBD purified form. Uh, are you suggesting that Divixol is, is either Sativex or? No, no, so, no, Epidiolex. it's Sativex and Epidiolex. Yeah, yeah. because Epidiolex is CBD. Yeah. Uh, Divixol is quite different. Yeah. The, the other two points to go, I think the, um, uh, the uh, Cintros is actually scheduled to. Which one? Okay. <laughs> We're almost done. <laughs> no. No. 
So the question was, am I going to talk about operating a motor vehicle? Um, I think it's pretty, you know, it's, it would be like anything, right? If you had a patient that you were putting on even an, an opiate or on something that you know is going to be potentially sedating or cause um, CNS alterations, you know, you have the legal um, uh, responsibility to make sure that your patients are safe behind the wheel, right? And, and so, and I'm, I'll let you talk later. Hold on a second. I'm almost done. This one, yeah. Okay. This is quite unique. Okay. Most of the states, there is a, either a zero tolerance for THC in the urine or saliva, or a 2.5 or 5.0 nanograms per deciliter. It's 5.9, 5.0 by itself, or 2.5 if there's any evidence of alcohol. The problem is it's prima facie evidence of impairment. You, your patient will be charged with operating a motor vehicle under the influence, and they will be criminally prosecuted. The problem is there's no science so, so are, are, are what you're saying is that, well, let's, let's kind of put it back a little bit. So if a police officer in any state feels that you are, you as a patient, um, are somehow under the influence, and they pull you over, you're driving erratically, you're driving too slowly, um, whatever. You know, they see you talking on the cell phone, they choose to pull you over and they have justifiable cause, and they can go ahead and urine test you or blood test you or saliva test you. They can now do a drag or saliva test, epinozyme. They don't need justifiable cause any more than a ride check. Are you, do you have ride checks in America where you do some impaired driving? Everywhere you're basically brought to a ride lane and you're asked to blow into a machine. Well, whenever they get you, they get you. The point here is that there is no predicate. You don't have to demonstrate field sobriety failure. Mm -hmm. There simply has to be the predicate. So post-accident, for example, mm -hmm. everyone mm -hmm. post-accident. Yeah, gets tested. Yep. If you have cannabis in your urine and you stopped smoking a week before, you still have mm -hmm. cannabis in your urine at five nanograms per deciliter. The reason I'm saying this is it's, it's, um, it's extremely unsettled. Mm -hmm. Science, yeah. but it's becoming very settled DOJ. And by that I mean, in the absence of science, they're simply saying if you've got pot in your system, you will be charged with paraphernalia, and you're guilty until. So it's scary. It's scary. You know, it's kind of brave new world, scary. And and I don't really have any answer for that. Um, but I think, and I don't have any answer for you. I mean, letting your patients know that. There is this potential, and it's the same, you know, it goes along the lines of saying if you're going to take your product and you're going to take it across state lines, you know, it's still illegal. So, you know, THC is still considered a Schedule One, regardless of what your state says, whatever your neighbor says, whatever your, you know, clinician says. <clears throat> and there are potential legal ramifications, and patients need to pay attention to that. You, or they need to be educated about that. Everybody has free will. They will do what they want to do, right? You just don't want to um, be the person that is, um, you know, putting them over the edge or, or putting them in, in unnecessary risk. So <clears throat> this was, uh, again, just for your um, reference, this came out of the European Journal of Internal Medicine um, this year. And it was um, just some advice, recommendations. Um, I thought, thought it was interesting information, and because of time, we're not going to go over it um, verbatim. But looking at um, some considerations for smoking, vaporizing, oral, and other routes. Um, and uh, a lot of always the question is, well, if I smoke it, 
is not going to cause cancer. And you know, what is what is the difference in the combustion and the exposure if someone is actually smoking it versus vaporizing it? And that starts to give you some preliminary data. All right, so um, just a couple more slides. We're almost done. So these are um, resources that I give to my patients. Um, I have no. Um, good way of identifying safety in dispensaries, right? They're changing constantly. There's no regulations. Um, I, it, they open, they close um, everywhere. <clears throat> so the one piece um, that I can recommend to my patients is that look for this voluntary certification. Ask them in the dispensary if they have um, gotten this voluntary certification um, that's endorsed by the American Herbal Products Association and the Herbal uh, Pharmacopoeia on cannabis in terms of, um, it, it gives you some type of comfort in terms of uh, product quality, um, safety in distribution, but also in manufacturing. Um, and then uh, this, just again, for more information, a lot of the resources, there are a couple of nice um, web resources here in the US, uh, Leaf, Leafy being one of them, but I really like to look at what's in the UK and what's in Canada. Um, I, I just, there's, they've been doing it a lot longer than we have. They have a lot more experience. They're usually up on the latest research, and I feel comfortable sending my, my patients to these websites to get more um, scientific information. Um, this is, so some of the states now are, <clears throat> it's, it's so fun, the irony is so funny, right? Still federally THC is illegal, but there are some states that have medicinal cannabis uh, legal that are requiring their clinicians, mostly physicians, there's only a few states that NPs and PAs can do the medical justification, to somehow take like four or 10 or 50 hours of education to then be able to um, write that medical recommendation and that is only what's going to be accepted by their state um, to, for the patient to get their medical marijuana card. Okay, that being as it is, I think if it's something that you choose to do um, and you're in a state that either does or does not recommend that, that you educate yourself. And this was a really nice resource. It's, you know, it's not great. I watched all of these modules and some are better than others, but um, it, it was medicinal education, cannabis education, and I think it's out of the um, Australia. It's either in Australia or New Zealand, um, these two clinicians practice, and I thought it was interesting and free for you, so you can get some more information. Um, and tips, familiarize your site, your final tips, um, driving is one, familiarize yourself with uh, THC and CBD dosing, familiarize yourself with the um, direct to plant interactions, your local dispensaries and refer patients accordingly, consider treatment agreements, right? Treatment agreements, um, whether you like the term or not, you know, you don't want to, um, it's not punitive, but it's a serious um, medication or a serious product that you're that you're recommending to patients or you're advising patients about. And just like opiates, they have a responsibility to you. You have a responsibility to them. You need to let them know what will happen um, if they break the treatment agreement. And it gives you that opportunity to sit down and have that discussion with your patients. All right, so in conclusion, um, cannabinoids are emerging as a valid option uh, for refractory chronic pain management, particularly neuropathic pain. Um, there are innovative solutions um, potentially to the opiate crisis, and uh, more studies are needed, we'll see. Uh, cannabinoid uh, opiate um, interactions could have a synergistic effect, um, and that deserves attention. And uh, clinical trials are challenging uh, to design and actually execute in the United States, but they're necessary. Um, and so I think calling for uh, more uh, 
legislation and action to do that, and we really can no longer refuse to just disgust and put our head in the sand. So I want to thank you for all of your attention. You guys are champs. You get the brownies that are in the back of the room now. Thank you.